to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, hey, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Sebastiano. It is election night here, and uh, if I was a betting man and I had to bet on a great co-host, I'd bet for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? You know, Dan, I was doing a bit of reflection today, and you know, just a little bit less than two years ago, I was called a smartass by Dominic DiNucci on our very first episode. You know, that's kind of like Babe Ruth saying to a rookie, hey, kid, you know, you're a pretty good hitter, or uh, Kristen Davis saying... To a young lady, you know, you're going to make a great hooker. And just to prove my undying devotion to this show, I had to go on Ranker.com, who actually rank, ranks hookers. Oh, no. I, I'm surprised they haven't reached out to us yet. But um, but here we are, almost two years and 100 episodes later, and we're going stronger than ever. So life is good. Yeah, we, it's, you know, it's funny. It didn't seem that long ago. We, uh, you, you came up with the idea of Dominic being our first guest and, and getting everything going. Uh, and then we reached out with uh, our episodes with George and obviously our long-term now long-term connection and friendship with uh, Boogie and, and his school. And here we are, like you said, coming up on episode hundred two you know, two years we've been doing this. So good times. Hard to believe. And you talked about reading, reading lists. Uh, speaking of reading, why don't you tell everybody uh, who we have on the line with us tonight? Because they have a lot to say about some stuff I know we've all read as far as wrestling goes. You know, we've had many, I call them slashes, slash guests. So this guest is a writer, slash publisher, slash photographer, slash producer, slash director, slash actor. And I'm sure I missed a couple of slashes along the way. But we're pleased to have as our guest, uh, Mr. Colin Bowman. Colin, welcome to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Thank you for having me, guys. Good to be here. Uh, you know, Colin, thank you so much for your time. We'll get started. The The first question is always the same. It's our standard opening question. We've heard so many unique stories. And oddly enough, uh, recently several people have said they weren't fans uh, at some point. So I got to ask you, uh, when did the wrestling bug first bite you? When did you first say, I'm a fan of wrestling? Before I was born. <laughs> that's a new well, That's That's definitely the earliest anybody's so gone I win, back. Benny. I, I win. Everyone else's stories are irrelevant. Oh, yeah. They all pale in comparison. Mine's now. the winner because before I was born. And I'll clarify. My mom actually went into labor and her waters broke while watching a live wrestling event in Glasgow, Scotland. And she wouldn't leave until it was over. And then... That was on a Friday night, and then off to the hospital, and then I was born the next day at 2.30. But, yeah, so I win. No one else can talk. Uh, I think we have a hard time matching up to that one. Jeez. (laughs) That's pretty good. Now, was that a WWE event, or was it uh, just a local? In 1963? I don't think so. Oh, no, no. Oh, 1963. (laughs) 
Uh, I'm pretty sure it was. I mean, I can't go back and check. It's impossible, but it would most likely have been at the Kelvin Hall, and I'm pretty sure it was probably involving Jackie Palo or Mick McManus or somebody like that. So that name I'm familiar with. I started uh, becoming a fan in 1968, and uh, I remember my, my first magazine I ever bought was uh, Wrestling Review. And I remember Barry McManus, and then the Kendo Nagasaki was the other name I remembered from. Uh, they they covered British wrestling and wrestling review. Oh, he was my favorite. Kendo Nagasaki was completely my favorite. The whole mask wow. man persona, everything. And of course, I come to learn many years later during research that there was quite a lot of Kendo Nagasakis, and um, but the one I liked, I guess, his name was Peter, and he was the one that had his. Uh, mask torn off by Big Daddy, you know, and it was a big, you know, nobody had ever seen an unmasking on TV, and, you know, it was a, a really big deal back in the day. So when when did you decide that you had a penchant for, for writing? When I discovered you could make money and not <laughs> work very hard, that was literally the case. I mean, it's... English, even though I'm Scottish and it's a, a, a dichotomy, it's um, it comes re- it came really easy to me at school. You know, they would set you down with an essay, and I would just churn it out, churn it out, and they're like 400 lines, and I would give them like eight pages, and you know, it was it was really easy, and you know, I liked writing, and eventually I became the editor of the school magazine, and we launched that. So. You know, it was just something that was simple. And of course, back in those days, you had to have the typewriter, didn't even have the self-corrector. It was one of those old things. And we were typing onto big Xerox paper, and then you would run it in that machine that turning the handle and cranking out all your pages and then stapling them together. The, the Dell machine or? Yeah, that Gestetner maybe was the main. Yeah, machine. wow. So that's, yeah, that's when I started. That was when it became work. <laughs> it wasn't a lot of fun when you're having to type. It's more fun when you're just writing things out. And, you know, letting the so did, did you always think that you were going to make your living as a writer? I mean, even, you know, at an early age? No, I wanted to be a barrister, an attorney, you know. Oh, wow, okay. Become a judge. That was my whole career path that I set my way through school. Um, but come 1979, the world was uh, hitting recessions and, and things were hard all over. And we just got Maggie into the, um, you know, round about then was when Maggie was in, Ronald Reagan was over here. And um, I decided I'd take a job at 16, at 15 actually. And uh, just put to one side all my aspirations of going to universities and things like that because we needed to to make more money and you know survive and so you know there I was signed up to be a engineering apprentice at one of the largest paper companies, um, which was a far cry <laughs> from where I intended. Um, oh, and then I got kicked out after three months and that was the luckiest thing that ever happened because i turned up at a one of the 
West End animation film companies to apply for a job in an accounts department. Didn't know anything about accounting. I knew about English and I could talk. And so I convinced them that I would be the greatest thing that ever happened to them if they hired me at 16. And she goes, yep, you know what? We're going to give you a try because your arrogance is ridiculous. And here's a big stack of papers of all the applicants that you will be calling back once you realize that you're out of your depth for this job in about three days. And it never happened. I was there until I left in 94. So I was there for a long time, 79 to 94. Now, were you a wrestling fan throughout your childhood and your, you know, your teen years? Yeah, I would watch the, everyone would watch the Saturday um, evening uh, wrestling that would come on just before the football results uh, uh, on World of Sport. Uh, they had a segment and they would show, you know, I don't know when they take these matches. That was always my biggest problem growing up. And that's one of the things that led me into wrestling journalism was I couldn't work out what I was watching, when it had been taped, how long ago it was, and, you know, trying to realize that these guys were wrestling the same matches every single night in a different town, which of course mirrored what was going on over here in the States as well. But in 79, 80, you know, all the way through, um, we weren't seeing any of the American wrestling, but we could read about it in all the actor mags. Um, and that was great. I mean, I had the biggest collection of, of those. Between those and horror magazines, uh, my bedroom was just like stacked high with, you know, wrestling reviews. And eventually, I don't know when PWI came out, but I imagine it was in amongst all my stuff. And, and so uh, that was it. And working at the film and video company gave me little insights and, you know, nothing really happened. I just kept in touch. But somebody came in to us in 1988, I'm going to say, and said, hey, remember that stuff you were watching with Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage? Because we got a couple of... Um, they would replace the British wrestling a couple of times a year with like a little half hour clip of, you know, American wrestling. Sometimes I'm pretty sure some of it was Memphis and, you know, but the WWF, they, they showed some of it. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. You know? And then of course you end up with Hogan in the movies and Roddy Piper. They live is one of my favorite movies. At the oh time, yeah. You know? And so you're like, wait, this guy's, this looks familiar. Oh, that's the wrestler that I saw, you know, and you're putting all together and they're in, and I'm showing all my friends, look, they're in the magazines. And they're like, what, they have magazines for wrestling? They didn't really care so much for, you know, everything. And I did as well. Football was our first love and we would travel the country watching our teams play and things. But wrestling was, you know, my, it wasn't a secret, but it was, I had nobody to share it with. You know, it was one of those things. My dad um, used to hang around with a lot of the boys in the 60s and you know, 70s, Brian Maxines and the um, you know, the Royals and, you know, all those famous British ones. So I had known what wrestling was from 
when I was like six or seven or eight years old. So there was no misconception there, but it was the business of wrestling that fascinated me as to how they keep going and how they, you know, do they change these stories every night? Do they wrestle a different mat? You know, how do they do it? I can barely like go to school, play soccer and get up the next day um, and have a week's rest, whereas they're wrestling every night. So that was for me the big fascination. I'm just, I'm curious. You mentioned Memphis wrestling, which was really, really out there as far as the angles and things like that. So how did that compare to what you would watch as far as British wrestling? British wrestling didn't really have a lot of gimmicks. British wrestling was trunks and boots. Um, There was a guy called Cat Weasel that was based on the TV show. And he had, you know, he's scrawny like a wizard and he had the beard and, and stuff like that. And that was kind of a gimmick. Uh, Adrian Street, who was another one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. Uh, he had the Hells Angels, you know, him and Bobby, Bobby Darren, I think it was, or Bobby Barron, they would, Bobby Barnes, they would come out as the Hells Angels. So there was gimmicks, but there wasn't really, there was no storyline that led up to any of these matches. You know, it's, you're coming into the ring, you're coming into the ring. I mean, when Dynamite Kid appeared and he was the tiny little scrawny kid, he's up against all these older guys and stuff like that. They would play that up. And Haystacks and Big Daddy would be building towards their big fight. It's like, wow, these are the two biggest men on the planet. And, you know, that's that's what you would get. But as far as storylines and crazy stuff like Memphis had, there was nothing. And, and I forgot, I mean... Time goes on. I forgot how crazy Memphis was um, until I was watching that Tales of the Territories, um, which is now my complete must-see TV. Oh, yeah. It's great. And um, I was like, oh, my God, yeah, I remember when they knocked Gilbert over with the car, you know, and all the crazy stuff going on there. So, and, of course, Jimmy Hart has told me many of the stories, and, you know, I did get a chance to work out there a couple of shows with um, Corey Macklin and Jimmy. So, yeah, I saw it firsthand. It was a different, completely different place. And, of course, we also got tapes. Um, the Lords of the, what was it, Lord of the Ring, and there's two of them that PWI created um, from that AWA, NWA Super Show. And I remember that was one of my favorite viewings for a long, long time. You know, it was different. You know, it's just, you know, I loved the WWF at the time as well. But for different reasons, it was definitely money driven in my mind that this was going to be a way. Well, (laughs) I thought I would make my fortune and be retired. So that was, you know, and as I say, there's a difference between being in the business of wrestling and the wrestling business. And at the time, business of wrestling was my big fascination. And in 88, somebody came to me and said, hey, WWF is going to be on TV regularly. You're going to have like four shows. It's going to be on this new Sky TV satellite. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, let me start, you know, in my magazines, there's tons, pages and pages of toys and games and 
merchandising. And in the UK, there's nothing. So I figured if this thing was going to take off, I should be there at the forefront of it. That was where I was. Vince got his hand on me. <laughs> but, um, Go ahead. I feel like I'm talking. I should let you ask questions. You, you kind of, to backtrack a little bit, you talked about, I mean, obviously before we get into your time with the wrestling magazines you you had were talking about your time with the school paper among other things uh your early writing was that wrestling related and uh kind of spin off to that how was your early wrestling writing received no i didn't write about wrestling because nobody was interested in it i wrote about football soccer um because we had two if if i can uh interject real quick as as you where you were from at the time your writing about football is probably different from what our listeners are picturing correct yeah i'm talking about soccer you know like over here the mls but over there it's like huge and you know biggest sport in the world are we talking uh barclays or no a diff- different league yeah the barclays league okay if it's still barclays yeah it's still barclays so that was that was interesting because I got to go out and actually interview players and write little stories about them and you know interview them and have to go and transcribe it all because we didn't have tape recorders. We used to sit there for little journal pads and make all our notes. Um, so no, wrestling really didn't come along until, as I say, after eighty. AEA, I positioned myself and I bought all this merchandise, like tons of it, imported it from the US. Um, I had the little Hasbro figures long before anyone else because WWF always has a plan as to when everything gets released. They'll do the TV, they'll build in, they'll build up towards a tour, then they'll start releasing the merchandise. And I think the first WWF show on TV was in 89, and they coincided that with a um, show in London as well, which I went along to and saw everything they had there. I actually bought a whole ton of merchandise, the stands, and they all thought I was crazy, but they didn't realize that I was going to take this stuff and flip it. Um, and, and that's really where it went from, and I just kept pushing, and I I bought a whole container what I thought was wrestling toys and when I got it, it wasn't just the figures it was the Acclaim handheld games it had so much stuff, Simpsons in it <laughs> dinosaurs, things that hadn't even come out in the UK properly and I was already stockpiling it in my warehouse wow. um, nice. making a fortune you know, so then I took it a step further because everyone wanted the things they could see in WWF magazine. They wanted those Legion of Doom shoulder pads, wanted all the Ultimate Warrior cups, lunch boxes, Hogan stuff. But there was no internet, and nobody wanted to send money orders over to the States. Nobody wanted to phone the States and give their credit card. You know, it was a whole different thing. And then here I am. Hi, I'm phoning from London. Yeah, my cousin's going to have a birthday party, so I'll need, like, 
40 Legion of Doom shoulder pads and, you know, just massive order for thousands of dollars. They were happy to get it and sent it over and I got it. And uh, my company name I was using at the time was called WrestleManiacs and X at the end. Well, it didn't take very long in the early 90s or late 90s after WrestleMania for me um, to get a cease and desist from the World Wrestling Federation. Wow. For using WrestleManiacs, which they said Wrestle is too close to WrestleMania. And um, also, they sent in the trading standards officers to my warehouse to take away samples of everything I was selling because they were convinced I was counterfeiting it. Well, they came in, they took it, and they're, where are you getting this stuff? And I just produced all these invoices from WWF's mail order <laughs> department. And they were like, oh, okay, well, we're sorry, but can you change your name? And, you know, we changed it, Turnbuckles UK. And that's the company that was always advertised at the bottom of PWI Weekly. Because in my endeavors to find out what was actually going on in real time, I would phone up a PWI and speak to the guys there and build up a good relationship with quite a few of them to the point that they would send me videos over the pay-per-views and I bought myself the equivalent American converter. So I'm watching all these pay-per-views that weren't WWF. They were you know, the NWA ones, WCW came along later. Um, I think there was one from AWA. And so I got to see more things. And uh, at some point they said, hey, WWE or WWF are doing these tours. Would you like to be our correspondent and report on them for us? And I was like, yeah, no problem. And that's what I started doing. I started sending the reports for the matches into London Publishing. And it just grew from there. And they, um, and then it started, they created WCW Magazine, if you remember. They took over the wrestling wrap-up and created that nice color glossy uh, WCW Magazine. And they would contact me about what's going on in the UK. And they put me in touch with Jim Barnett. And Jim Barnett was coming over and it was all hush-hush. WCW were going to do a tour. And I think that was 1991 Power Tour. And he wanted to come over and just ask me a few questions. He'd heard good things about me from Bill Apter and London Publishing. And we met at a big hotel in London. He said, right, what you need to do for me, because I'm convinced you can do it, is be my eyes and ears over here, because I can't be here, you know, the whole time. These guys are the promoters. This guy's the publicist. And we're going to send you over Johnny B. Bad and PN News to do the press junkets. Well, Max Clifford was the publicist. And if you look up Max Clifford from years ago, he is a sleazy kind of a publicist, or he was a sleazy publicist. So he's arranging all these stories with Johnny B. Bad and PN News, the topless girls for the 
newspapers that are topless, and I'm thinking to myself, hey, I got two biggest baby faces over here <laughs> that are specifically WCW's attempt to um, connect with kids, you know? And here we are doing photo shoots with two girls with giant cans. <laughs> it's going to be in a Sunday newspaper. And I'm like, there's nothing I can do. And, and it got to the point where ticket sales were so weak because this wasn't, you know, WCW territory. This wasn't a Hogan or an Ultimate Warrior or The Undertaker. And that, you know, there was a desperation around at the time that this was not going to work or would have to be cancelled or whatever. But they went ahead uh, three nights at Earl's Court with Oz and Diamond Stud, Sting and Hammer. I mean, it was pretty much stacked card you know, for the time. That's um, that is a hell of a card. Yeah. They had um, yeah, Page was over. Uh, but Rick Rude had just joined the company. And so he was there, you know, they threw him straight into this tour. And obviously, because I'd been involved in some of the promotion stuff, I know Johnny B. Bad and become quite good friends with him. Um, but after the first night, uh, I get, a, I'm up talking to, to Mark. I think we were going to go live, but before... But there's like a knock, knock, knock on the door, and this guy comes up and he goes, Paul Heyman wants to see you downstairs in, you know, room. So I go downstairs, and he's in there with Rick, and he's like, did you take photos of last night's show? I'm like, yeah. He goes, do you have them back yet? And I go, yeah. And he just takes them off me. He goes through, and he's like, well, they didn't give us any materials or promotion stuff, so we're just going to take all these and then hands it back to me. And I'm like, okay, well, thank goodness I have negatives. That's, you know, literally that's all I could come up with. And that was my introduction to uh, Ollie and Rick Road. I had a great relationship with Rick on to that point. But, you know, it's that UK tour was good for me um, in as much as they had asked me to hire a photographer as well as cover it. I figured I'll just buy my, I've done photography at school many years before, and I, you know, still dabbled a bit, but I didn't have the latest equipment. So I just went out, bought myself the latest equipment, shot the three shows at Earl's Court. Results were really good. Everyone was happy, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to add photography to my, to my resume. That's how that, that's how that came about. How, how did you get the actual gig with, you know, I mean, because I, I read with, you know, as far as it, it sounded like you were pretty much a one man show with the WCW magazine. You were the, the the publisher, the owner, the editor. I mean, you pretty much did everything. Yeah, well, as I say, all these tours that were happening, um, I was getting access and they would send over their merchandise guys, their licensing guys everything and i would just listen to what everyone was saying and listen to conversations and yes sir no sir you know it's like you dumb yourself down a lot and become a chameleon 
so that you are whatever the person in front of you needs you to be. And that way you can find out what's going on, what's needed, and learn so much. And I learned a lot, but I learned it for my own internal use. I don't go out, you know, anything I hear or saw never left me. You know, it was all just stuff that I was gathering um, to try and get this career and this dream of retirement and money to keep moving, you know. And so I would do everything that was was needed to do. Um, I could, you know, the different tours I've gone there, I do the photography, I eventually get invited to travel on the buses. I would, you know, be allowed in the locker rooms, which was completely unprecedented. I mean, when we're talking back to 91 and 92, and I'm not an employee, I don't really have anything other than I'm taking pictures at ringside, reporting back to WCW magazine. Um, Jim Ross liked me, you know, at the time. I had to drive him from London to Birmingham at high speed uh, to try and make an interview that um, Johnny and PM were doing. And of course, we didn't make it. And he was like, OK, we're never doing this rush driving through England again. <laughs> it's not that impressed by how people drive there. Um, but I'd also started writing for Teletext or CFAX, whatever it was called. I don't know if you ever had that over here. This is long before the I mean, this is the. This is what nobody really understands. There was no Internet. There was, you know. It was really hard to get your wrestling news. Um, and to get real wrestling news because everything was still very much. Just made up. I mean, I hate to say it, but wrestling journalism back then. It was made up. It was made up to reflect or to guess at what was going on because nobody really knew, you know. But there was no internet. There was yeah. no hotline. There was nothing. It was literally a free blank canvas. So I got asked if I would do a wrestling uh, column every week for CFAX, which was this thing on your TV where you press the button, change to a little channel, and all had that pixelated you know, like the early computer games, but it was all just text. It would have results, it would have stories, it would have, you know, so anything I could find out, I'd just put on there, you know. Um, Satellite Times magazine, which was the equivalent of your TV guide, um, asked me to do a column um, once a week, uh, or once a month for that about wrestling, which I did. And that and that's where it was all starting. And, and um, PWI hired me to report on SummerSlam 92. And I said, there is no way the WWF are letting me in to Wembley Stadium to cover this thing. They go, no, nope, you'll be fine. Our press credentials, nobody's going to say anything. Oh, and by the way, in the lead up, go and meet Davey Boy Smith and take some pictures of him. You know, at the, you know, uh, him and the Ultimate Warrior had a, pre-show, you know, pre-week, pre-month, whatever, promotion. And so I went, did that, pictures, everything was fine. Turn up at SummerSlam, got my credentials, and they go, yep, here you go, into the press box. And I'm sitting in the press box and TV screen, they hand me a program. 
And then two minutes later, they're like, no. Nope. And they take the program away. <laughs> they took the TV screen away and just made me feel as uncomfortable as I could. But I wasn't leaving. I was staying. But that's how they never forget someone. You know, that's how they keep an eye on you. So they were already mad at me because of the earlier merchandising thing. They were certainly mad at me because I was involved in the original WCW tour. And but they let me stay there, but they made me feel very uncomfortable and unwanted. And I think really after I phoned Bill Actor from my little phone box and reported on everything for him, um, I think at that point I turned around and went, I'm not going to have anything to do with WWF um, ever. My whole career, uh, I'm going to go all in on WCW. And and that's where it was. And I, I just, you know, at that point, I was just like, no, I can't, I can't do it. And I had a couple of friends that had gone to work from, they'd left London Publishing and they'd gone to work for WWF Magazine. Yeah, it was that. It changed. It originally had another name, didn't it? Victory Magazine or something. But I think they changed and they were saying it, it wasn't fun doing the photography and, you know, the schedule was killing. So I was like, okay, I made the right decision. And then in the UK, I did some work for Dennis Publishing, who had a whole bunch of those one-shot specials, cashing in a row. You know, they started off doing things on boy bands and pop stars, and then wrestling became the thing. So I would contribute a few stories and pictures to those. Um, EMAP Publishing wanted to do a wrestling magazine called Wrestling Big Shots. And I contacted George Napolitano's agent and him and did that magazine for the five issues. And that was a really good experience. And that's where I really learned how to put together the magazines and thinking to myself, look, you don't need a staff of hundreds. Computers are now coming available. Uh, Prodigy had its, you know, wrestling uh, chat rooms and, you know, very underground and very like just typing words to people. There's no pictures, no fanciness. And AOL as well was coming around and starting to, you know, I, I couldn't get AOL in England. I had to get a disc and then dial very roundabout way. But my phone bill was like 400 pounds a month, which was like six hundred dollars. Wow! For for our uh, for our younger listeners out there, yes, there was a point in the past where you had to buy the internet over the mail, and they would send you discs, and that you would install your internet minutes. Well, no, not only that, but you then had to dial into it. Yep. And your phone wasn't unlimited. You were being charged. If I was phoning America, I was being charged something like fifteen cents a minute. Yeah, you, you would pay long distance fees for connecting to the internet in a foreign country. Yeah. So while I was doing all these different magazines and all these different reports and, you know, trying to work out my position with WCW and it getting better, um, I was introduced to the Honky Tonk Man um, by, he had the same agent as George did, and they wanted to do a hotline. And I said, okay, well, then I'll phone you twice a week and we'll do Honky Tonk Men's Hotline. 
and you know getting the whole 99 pence a minute and sending him money and then i decided maybe i should do one of general you know so his one was all about secrets and you know what was going on and stuff i decided i'd do one with all the wrestling news and we'd record that twice a week so it was becoming a little mini industry for me within itself but without actually having a firm direction you know i was doing everything um making loads of money killing myself um but i still didn't know what direction i really wanted to end up in and i really always felt my life would be easier if i could just take everything i'm learning and everything i've done and apply it to wcw you know and, and somehow get in there um and it just took a long time to to break down the doors and pwi still had the wcw magazine but if you remember it was starting to get smaller it was starting to be half color black and white you know this the the production values on it were going downhill but that was because it wasn't selling any copies and then in um june 94 they ceased publication of it that's when i saw my opportunity because being on the tours of 93 and 94 i think i did three wcw tours where i'd actually published the tour program um and they liked it so much the ones that we did for the uk that they wanted me to do a big run of them they could then sell in their uh, house shows in the states so with the computers and with the ability to print and ship to the us big pallets of these magazines and stuff for that i thought to myself okay i'm ready to make the next step um and I was over in Orlando, funnily enough, Bash at the Beach 94. And that's when I, you know, with Hogan, Hogan's first match against Flair. And that's when I first really started talking to people running WCW at the time. This is before Eric Bischoff. This is, you know, it's like it's still a hierarchy uh, where Turner was controlled, not Turner himself, but you know, the Turner organization controlling things and you were negotiating with the suits um licensing and everything and finally they said okay we will give you the license for wcw magazine sure you can deliver it you know and at the time i still had the big film company behind me um so they were happy to let me set up my own publishing division i had my artists i had you know everything in place I had the writers so if you can imagine you've got me in the uk but flying backwards and forwards all over the place because I was now taking the photos at events and reporting on them. I have two designers in North London. I have four writers in the States, uh, assistant editor, and me doing all the, the photographs and things. It's all being put together in London. It's all being sent to a printer in England, getting printed, loaded up on pallets and shipped over to the US. Um, 
say the first issue finished in December 94 uh, with an on-sale date of March, you know, uh, 95. And I, I won't bore you with the business details of how much hard work it was to actually get any kind of circulation. The previous one had bombed so badly by the end of it that, you know, basically when I said, hey, I'm relaunching WCW magazine, every distributor basically laughed at me said you're crazy you're, you're never going to be able to get enough circulation i said well we've got hulk hogan now <laughs> that was the argument you threw into everything whenever anyone said you can't do this said, but we've got hulk hogan and you know whether it made a difference to buy rates or anything they knew who he was so you could still I don't want to say flim flam your way, but that's pretty much what I was having to do. Having to like tap dance around and say, you know, we're going to sell this many. And I had no clue if we would sell it or not. And we didn't for the first eight issues, trust me. Yeah, we were in big trouble after the first eight issues. And something happened. Clicked. I think around about issue 10. Clicked. And, uh, just never looked back. So, it was good. Good times. I still have somewhere in the uh, boxes on my shelf over there that that relaunch with Hogan on the cover. So, all these years later, it's still good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I I just went in the cupboard there the other day, and a whole bunch of the proof sheets from about twenty different magazines all fell on top of me. And I was like, oh, still have these, you know, because back before, I mean, eventually we ended up going print straight to, um, from computer straight to the printing press. But before that, we still had to be producing the film and every page having to be examined for, uh, you know, color and making sure it was all right. Um, but, you know, I, I had a great time. It's, you never thought it was going to end. That, that's the biggest thing, and that's and that's what did happen in the end. Up it ended, and it's still, even though I'd already gone when WCW ended, it was heartbreaking, you know, just for the people that I knew that worked there, and just because it'd been such a big part of my life, even before I worked for them, you know. So, it, but at the time, I just thought this is this is it. I'm gonna make it. I can retire. <laughs> but yeah, I wouldn't try change any part of it though. It was, um, it was good times, and of course I still had heat from people in both front offices. Um, <laughs> Eric Bischoff didn't like me very much at all. In fact, he just didn't like me. So that was always a war. Um, and then one of the other things I was doing is why, well, and he would get annoyed about things from before I had the magazine. So nobody was prepared to pay me, give me a job. You know, that's the joy of actually buying a license to produce the magazine, and having my own company. I was like, shit, you don't have to give me a job. I am now part of this and I'm protected because I'm really kind of like your customer and you're kind of my, you know, because I'm having to pay them money to produce this magazine. And 
So the dynamic changed a little bit there, but he remembered the fact that I started up, um, I took over my friend Superstars of Wrestling magazine in the UK, and that became Power Slam. And we rebranded it. So Power Slam magazine was the biggest one in the UK for years and years, and Finley Martin did a great job with that. So I started that, and of course, that was annoying for some reason. He was really annoyed because he knew that during one of the WCW tours, which I wasn't being paid for, but I was just there doing photos for everyone. I got hired by Danish Publishing to go to another part of Germany, go and do a photo shoot for them with Bret Hart walking around Germany. So I'm in one city on tour with WCW, and I'm in another city with arguably WWF's biggest star taking photographs for him of him. So, but somehow that got to Eric and like he kept that under a hat for a long, long time. And then one day in the middle of an argument, brought it right up. And I was like, oh, you know about that. Then. But, yeah. There's so many stories. But yeah, that's where it is. You know, you, you talked about branching off. Um, now obviously, you know, right, Benny referred to you as the man of slashes. But other than, than the WCW magazine, you were writer, photographer, publisher of Roller Jam. Uh, we recently had James Fitzpatrick on the show. Uh, he was a photographer for Roy Shire's big-time wrestling promotion and skated uh, the San Francisco Bay Area Bombers, Roller Derby. Um, obviously, Benny... You know, he, he's a little older than I am, so he was around for, for its peak. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe, to, to spin off wrestling a little bit, uh, describe your experiences doing the magazine side, uh, the writing side for, for Roller Jam, and then any similarities or differences between what it was like covering Roller Derby versus uh, wrestling. Roller Jam, wow. Um, first of all, I didn't know a lot about roller derby or roller jam. I did. It wasn't. We don't have it in the UK. We'd never seen any of the TV shows. So the their licensing guy was out of Connecticut or New York, and he was looking for. You know, it was a new property. He wanted to do a magazine, and at that time as well, you have there was also an ECW magazine out. Because um, they were on TNN, and basically them and Roller Jam were going to coexist, and this was going to be the the big block that was going to push the Nashville network into into orbit. Um, so I had to fight really hard. Apparently, there was a lot of people after this Roller Jam magazine because I guess their pitches were good, and I still had all my staff. Um, because just briefly before that, WCW basically stabbed me in the back and all my staff um, to take the magazine in-house. So we were looking for something else that we could do. It's a story for another day, but basically things weren't going to work out. Promises were broken, and I didn't want to have all my staff unemployed. So that's why we went after Roller Jam. And none of us knew a lot about it, but 
we had seen the briefings, we'd spoken to, oh, I wish I could remember his name. He's really important. Um, but we all showed up in Vegas for those first tapings. And it wasn't anything different. Being on the sets for Roller Jam and how the shows were put together, they were identical to wrestling, you know? Um, right down to the point where the big stars, they weren't happy with what was written in the writing room. Um, they would make a little protest and had all your clicks and you had, you know, you could walk into the room and you would see all the post-it notes on the wall as if it was a sitcom you know, with all the things that were going to happen. So it was a little more open than the wrestling rooms, um, but still the exact same principle. Um, and girls, you know, the girls were the selling point um, and the costumes and it was good. I, I I, in all honesty, I couldn't see how it was going to hit the demographics and everything that it wanted. I mean, they really wanted it to be like wrestling, but it wasn't. And it, it could never be because the things that people like about wrestling isn't just storylines. You know, they actually want to see the action. They want to be a part of the action. And I think it's a lot easier to show action in a 18 by 18 ring with a few people than it is to have you know 12 people on a bank track it's like a you know a while long trying to like focus on you know what's going on there and try and get those stories and really you can't appreciate roller, roller jam when you watch it on tv it's something you really have to see as a spectacle you know, to appreciate the speeds and, and everything that's going on. So I had a lot of fun with it. Um, there was a lot of kids that really thought this was going to be their big break and they were going to make tons of money. They're not. A whole mile of wrestlers had the same experiences. Um, and there was too many, too many cooks in the kitchen you TNN putting in their input with another production company putting in their input and then you had the roller jam people trying to put in their input and nobody could ever agree on anything so the fact they actually created many shows as they did and that we did the tapings down at um, Universal Studios afterwards to get all the other shows done then coming back for a second series in a converted American Gladiators um, dining experience building is what they took over and turned into the Royal Jam Arena for the second season. Uh, it just, it was never going to have a chance because nobody's interests were aligned with, to each other and we just couldn't afford to produce more than three issues of the magazine. It was just, there was nothing there. There was no you know, there's no synergy between the show and the magazine and, you know, and I, I sold more copies of the calendar, the girls in it, than I did of all the magazines put together, which pretty much tells you everything you need to know about who was watching Royal Jam. It, it never 
connected with the old the old school roller derby fans that they thought would come in there. They're they're millions. But the arguments were always the same. Like this isn't real. They're on rollerblades. Quads is the way to go. You know, it's like it's so funny that the arguments that the fans would have about the legitimacy of of roller jam was far more. Uh, I know it's hard to believe, but they were far more intense than wrestling fans when it came to arguing about this shit. I mean, oh wow, crazy. Um, you know. Uh, but it was fun. I mean, it was a great experience. I mean, at one point I was in the running to become the actual real general manager of, of Roller Jam, um, working out of the building in Orlando. But it just wasn't going to, you know, it wasn't where I wanted to be and it really wasn't going to fly. So this was, withdrew myself. Colin, one of one of the uh, one of my favorite books of all time is uh, Bruno San Martino, the autobiography of wrestling's living legend. Um, tell us about your involvement with that. I mean, I I've read that book. I mean, I've read parts of that book probably ten times. It's one of those books that you can kind of pick up almost in any place and just read a piece of it without really you know losing track of the story. And uh, you know, in my opinion, that book could have probably been a thousand pages. Um, uh, what was your involvement? I mean, I, I, the only reason why I say that is because the number of wrestlers who probably wanted to do a tribute to Bruno, although I, I would think by the time you got involved, a lot of them were gone. Um, but w- what would just describe your involvement in that book? Uh, did you ever read the original one? Yes, I did. Yeah, I, I mean, I have read so many wrestling autobiographies over the years and literally the standard of writing, grammar, spelling, everything drives me insane. And it's just, they're just fluff pieces where people have said, hey, I'll write your autobiography and, you know, we'll make some money. And there's a million of them on the shelf. And so Sal had said that Bruno wants to, Sal Carenti, like done wrestle reunions with, we done wrestling legend, you know, there's a whole bunch of things. Um, and he was, I don't know if you say he's Bruno's manager or advisor or whatever, you know, but they had a good relationship. I've met Bruno a few times when he did stuff with WCW and also at Wrestle Unions, and I like Bruno a lot. In fact, he's the only, him and Pedro Morales, Referee shows for WCW at the theater at Madison Square Garden back in mid 90s. And I made a point, and I never do that. I'm not a, I am now, but at that time I would never go up to anybody in the restroom and say, hey, can I have your autograph? Can I have your autograph? I was like a 10 year old kid. I opened my camera case and said, can you sign this? And even to this day, my main hard shell camera case that I traveled everywhere with is still signed inside by Bruno wow. and Pedro. Because at that time, that was the biggest deal for me. I'd not seen a lot of his matches or anything, but the name, even in the UK as a kid, I knew who Bruno San Martino was. So it was a big, big deal the first time I ever met him. So when Sal said to me, here's an autobiography that was done by Bruno 
um, years ago, can you look over it? And I read like the first couple of paragraphs and and I started to skip read it and then I started to get angry with it and and I was like, I can't do this. I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to do it. So he's like, why? I said, because we're in a different time now. Some of these stories, like who's going to believe that? I mean, it's like, it's, we're in the internet world. We're in the, no, no, Bruno's agreed that we're going to change a few things and tell a few more stories, you know, because it's time. He accepts that it's time. So, okay, so I said, well, what have you got? So Sal started sending me over pages and pages and pages, and then there was the original book. We still had to take the first parts of that. So it just became one of those projects where it never moved very fast because I had to do so much rewriting and not rewriting of content. I just had to make it English. You know, just in what people expect when they read a book, you know, it's got to be grammatically correct. You know, obviously when it's like Bruno's saying something, it doesn't have to be, you know, because you want to hear the author's voice. But when you're just doing basic descriptions and stuff, you know, there has to be full stops and periods and commas and punctuation and spelling. And so it was just not going very fast not going very far and I'd created the cover for the magazine uh, for the, the book I'd sent that to Sal and I was waiting for Bruno to approve it and it just seemed like it had got you know it just was back burner back burner back burner and then Bruno died you know fortunately everything had been taken down all the interviews had been complete for it and that and I wasn't going to push and say, hey, where are we at with this? Is this going to go on? Is this going to go on or not? Because I just felt it was disrespectful. So I just put it all to one side and just left it at that. Then Sal came back and he says, well, um, his wife and son, they would really like to finish this book. Can you put a time frame, timetable when we're together? And I'm like, well, can you actually start producing the material that you've got you know written down and taped and and then it was just i was sitting there and i was doing it and i was like you know what there's a lot missing from this that it can go on and i started doing research and finding more things and i go to sell what's the story with this cell and he's like oh um i don't you know and i just kept finding stories and stories and then i said to sell i said so how about all his friends contribute something else. And this is why the book went like nearly a year over time to produce it. Because every time when I thought I was finished, I would find a picture like on a Bruno with the great Mua, which I hadn't seen. And I'd find another picture and then I'd find that Bruno attended this event, like the Arnold Schwarzenegger strong I, you know the more research i did the more things i found i'm like damn if i didn't know about these nobody knows about it. let's get them in there and then interviewing fans and you know and then finally i think we got up to 580 pages close yeah uh, mm -hmm. which i think is three times the size of the original book which is all i was set out to do was to just add a few extra paragraphs to that 
and the pictures, and I got all the magazine covers Bruno had been on, got permission from London Publishing to be able to reproduce all those. Um, and it was probably the most satisfying thing I've done in the whole business of wrestling. I, I'm so proud of how that book came out. You know, I was constantly worried that I am writing a book about the living legend with his words and his everything. And I'm trying to just, I don't know. It was overwhelming at times. There was times I would sit down at night and go, I don't think I can do that. I, I don't think I can do it justice. There's a difference between being a wrestling journalist and doing stuff and sitting there and actually writing the real life story of the book. I can't make up something to fill in a paragraph here, you know? It's like I've got to research and find what went on. And you know, even finding um, his friend Mike, that trip they took through the end of Bruno's life when they went to his town and the big statue and, you know, and getting him to rewrite a story and put that in. And I don't know, it was, it was overwhelmed, but I'm really satisfied with it. I, I haven't gone back, in all honesty, I haven't gone back and read it um, since I finished it uh, because I read one through, did the proofs. Um, and I don't want to because I'm sure I'll find one typo and I'll lose my mind. <laughs> that's, how, that's how anal I am about all those things. Like I can't pick up USA Today magazine, a newspaper, and read it because there's always a typo in the early page and I'm just like, oh, that's just ruined it. You know, so yeah, I don't want to go back and look at it, but do enjoy looking at all the pictures and, and say just, I don't know, it was really satisfying to finish it and then to read everyone's reviews because that's the big worry. You finish it, did the two versions in black and white and color because when you've done something that size, let's spend the extra money and do a color version which is really expensive for people to buy but it's really expensive to produce so you know um give people the choice surprisingly a lot of bruno's fans bang straight to that color edition but yeah it was it was a labor of love that's that's how i and, and definitely from sal's point of view and I don't know if he ever got frustrated every time I found another, you know, 50 pages that we had to put in. <laughs> he never showed, which is unusual for Sal, because the first time I met Sal, I hated Sal. I, I didn't have time for this noisy New Yorker. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> and then, uh, but over the years, it's like, I think at first we came to a mutual understanding that we were both really good at what we do both really blunt and you know and once that worked and of course we had jimmy hart as the mediator so that always worked but yeah the work we put in on that book uh yeah it's a great book well if we ever get uh sal back on the show benny we'll have to ask his side of the first impressions oh yeah <laughs> uh colin if we, if we wrap up tonight i, I can't Thank you enough for your time. Um, 
obviously, you know, we talked about your your work with the magazines, your your past with everything from WCW and and you know, uh, Rollerball. It, it, it's funny because you, you hear the stories all the wrestling fans have heard in the interviews through the years about like Jim Cornette starting as the young photographer, uh, our our friend George Pontus, his. He, he was at the, the Mid-Atlantic and, and the shows he, and here in Virginia and, you know, recording and taking pictures. And, you know, a lot of the early uh, Battle of the Nature Boys, Flair and Buddy Rogers, was uh, like you, your, your story almost line for line. The young kid sitting at ringside who, who worked his way in to get some pictures. And next thing you know, you know, you're, you're the professional photographer running things. It's it's funny how it just kind of plays out like that a lot with wrestling. But as we wrap up tonight, um, do you have any any projects, uh, anything you want to uh, hype, push out, anything, any closing thoughts like that? No, I mean, I as far as wrestling goes, I sit there and Jimmy Hart will come and pitch something to me, and you know, if we can make it work, we can make it work. If not just goes on the, the back burner and, and that's the way it's always been. I'm not actively looking to go back into wrestling. I spend most of my time with the company I work for that produces prop replicas, Rambo Knives, Ghostbusters, Aliens, for all those movies we do, you know, that kind of stuff. Go to Comic-Con every year, which is good fun. So, you know, but projects will come along and, you know, I'll I'll probably do them. Everyone tells me I should write a book because there's the XWF. I was the photographer that took the picture of Cactus Jack when he lost his ear. I was the ringside photographer for that match. I don't think, even with all the years of experience that many of these photographers like Bill Apter and have had, that anybody shot as many matches as I did, because I had to be at every Disney and Universal TV taping where you've got like, you know, 50, 60 matches a day being shot. And I'm there every single day for a week or two weeks. It's just a phenomenal amount of, you know, photography that I used to have to do. With that comes many, many stories. But I, I, I think writing a book is a betrayal uh, as I said, you know, it's like I saw a lot and I, I've kept it to myself and just the way it is, it's it's of no use to me now to, you know, tell the stories and stuff because most of them, my friends are all, rest their souls and stuff are dead. So, you know, they're just tacky, you know, it's like when you write stories about people and they have no right of reply, you know, that's not. I can understand. You know, um, I love the business. A little bit soured on how things went down at the end. And then I did spend lots of years just not paying attention. You know, if it was my own project that I was doing with Jimmy, then I would pay attention to those guys. I mean, I love the older wrestlers. I mean, they're just phenomenal. And that's why wrestle reunions and that whole concept, I think I did five of the eight of those and then we had the special one in Clearwater with um, Bobby Heenan, Gene Oakland, Demolition, 
nasty boys, Coco beware. It's like one of the last times that Bobby was was out and about. The you know, Hulk showed up, and you know it was great. And it's just you're sitting around with those guys, and you're just talking and talking and talking, and listening to everything they have to say. It, it's good times. I mean, they say that tells of the territories when you get five of them sitting around the table. That's how life was, <laughs> you know, on the road. You know, I worked with Harley and you know uh, Ollie Anderson and all those guys that were still in charge of WCW back in the day stories and you hear about you know even from people like Steve Austin and you know Brian Pillman it's, I've had a great experience I mean it's you know it's like I always say it's like we were Rolling Stones on tour compared to you know this is probably Taylor Swift or something that <laughs> that goes on now but it, you know it was it was wild times and our wild times didn't compare to the wild times of the groups before us you know it's it's <laughs> it's terrifying what some of those things used to be you know? so that's it that's you know let's say there's a million other things that i was involved in but it's only a limited amount of time and i don't want to bore people anymore even i hate the sound of my voice well there you have it uh the the We'll leave on the visual of the wrestling back scene, backstage being more like the, a Rolling Stones concert than Taylor Swift. I love it. Kyle, thank you again for your time. Uh, we'll get the, uh, as like I said, uh, at the top of the hour, we're recording this on election night, so we'll post it live for you. And uh, again, thank you so much. We'll, we'll tag everything. The book in question that we talked about earlier was Bruno San Martino, The Autobiography of Wrestling's Living Legend. Anywhere books are sold, check it out. And anybody who's interested, uh, any quick search of eBay, you can find a lot of the old WCW magazines. Uh, I got mine, like I said, sitting and still on the shelf from all these years later. So, again, Colin, thank you so much for your time. Great work. Great stuff, as always. Nice to meet you both. Uh, yes, thank you, sir. And, uh, be safe. Hope this hurricane you, you do this. Yeah, you do the yeah, same. Be safe in the hurricane. All right. Thank you, guys. Take, take care. You know, it's funny, he, you always say you hear something makes you feel old when he said 1994. Like, I remember getting that magazine, Hogan on the cover, and, you know, I was a teenager at the time, and not thinking much of it. That was, that was 28 years ago. Like, it doesn't, I mean, you know, that 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 magazine would be complaining about, almost you know, feeling old now. But Yeah, I gotta say, though, like, I don't know if his mom's still around or not, but she'd be a hell of a guest. I mean, that's a fan. You know, you watching <laughs> wrestling at a house show and your water breaks and you want to stick around because you want to see the main event. This, Damn. This this kid is staying in here until this right, match yeah. is over. You, you can wait another hour. I got to watch this. That's funny. Yeah, no, that's always good stuff. Uh, another great one in the bag, Manny. I love the, oh, yeah. the you know, this, this is the kind of stuff, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe not stories for everybody, but. You don't the kind of stories you don't get uh, with the the usual you know the 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 usual crowd you know everybody wants to talk about the ups and downs and the 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 match results and and I want to hear the stories you know you're you're not gonna uh, unfortunately as society he talked about with the Bruno book you know people leave us sooner than we'd like and sometimes you know there's there's going to be a point in our lives where we're not going to hear these stories anymore so get them out there now. You know, 
and I, when we first started doing this podcast, I wondered what the shelf life would be. I thought, like, surely we'll run out of guests and we'll run out of stories. But, you know, here we are almost two years later, almost 100 episodes, and we're still finding people. And, we're you know, we're uncovering new stories every week. Yeah. It, like I said, like, you know, uh, outward and upward, and <clears throat> we keep chugging along. We've, you know, thousand, thousands of, of now now uh, uh, members and posts, and, and it's... You know, considering I said from day one, you know, the average shelf life of uh, a sports and entertainment podcast is three episodes and a few weeks, if that. And here we are two years later, still growing, still doing our thing, still, and most importantly, still having fun. So, and, you know, and, and, you know getting, getting called a smart ass. I was joking around about it, but like Dominic DiNucci, man, like I, I was 13 years old and I watched him on TV and now I'm actually talking to the guy. Like, you have no idea how surreal and how like, unbelievable that is and like we've yeah. done that with jimmy and ivan putsky and bill dundee and you know so many of these guests that like they were you know memories of our youth and now we're chatting with them and they have all these great stories absolutely and you know you, you it kind of gives you that that giddy fan feeling not just chatting with them but when you talk about people like jimmy and you know uh, we've had some recurring guests and we've had interactions with people on on the page and people that we talk to outside the podcast now like like these are you know you still get that that kind of fan fan feeling fangirl if you will feeling that here's somebody i grew up watching and as a fan of and if we bumped into each other on the street they know me like they know my name they you know that's it's not it's not just like uh, uh, shaking hands with somebody at a convention like they, they've become parts of our lives in a way that like you said it's it's such a neat feeling and and keeping at it two years later uh, as we announced on the page uh, over the weekend uh, episode 100 will be uh, uh, our special 100th episode extravaganza will be joined by legend in every sense of the word Ken Patera how's that for a hundredth episode? And there's no truth to the rumor that I'm flying out to Minneapolis and uh, letting him put me in the swinging full Nelson. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going away, Billy White Wolf. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, uh, to, uh, anybody that, that knows, when they talk about the the toughness that stays with you, uh, Ken, he'd st- he'd probably take he'd still be able to to whoop up on both of us, and you oh know that. Oh my God, I I, w- I wouldn't I wouldn't mess with him for sure. <laughs> well, we look forward to it. We got plenty of. Uh, Plenty of fun ahead, and uh, like I said, like we said, we keep doing our thing. So for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spastiano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. Stay safe out there, folks. <laughs>